Hi, welcome to The Beagle Has Landed. I am your host, Laura Hersher. We often discuss how it has changed medicine to go from a phenotype-first response to a genotype-first response. But that change, which has happened uh, first slowly and, and, and now much more rapidly over the last 20 years, how does it affect the patients? We've looked into that less. How does that affect the patients? That question is the subtext of a book called Mobilizing Mutations, Human Genetics in the Age of Patient Advocacy uh, by Daniel Navon. Dan, who is here today, is Associate Professor of Sociology at the University of California in San Diego. He's also a faculty member in the Science Studies Program and the Institute for Practical Ethics. He received his PhD in sociology from Columbia University in 2013 and trained as a Robert Wood Johnson Foundation Scholar in Health Policy at Harvard uh, from 2013 to 2015. Fancy credentials, Dan. Thank you so much for joining us here today. Thanks so much for having me. I'm a big fan of the podcast, so it's really great to be here. Thank you. So, Dan, your uh, book takes a look at one of the darlings of genetic medicine, disease communities. That is the official or unofficial networks that have emerged to support individuals struggling with a condition, a disease, or their families. And it's a cliche to say that genetic conditions are individually rare and collectively common, but as my mom always used to say, life is a process of watching the cliches come true. And um, the power of disease communities combined with the internet um, have enabled parents to feel um, less alone in their struggles, and clinicians can offer the perspective of multiple cases. Researchers can recruit multiple families for studies. Genetic counselors can offer prognostic information based on a whole spectrum of the condition and not the one case that they saw 15 years ago. So for us, disease communities are, we, we think of them as these tremendously powerful and helpful things. Do you think that's a simplification? I think it really all depends on what kind of diseases and disease communities you're talking about. So let me be clear at the outset, I'm a, I'm a huge admirer of these disease communities. Um, I have no doubt that if I had a family member affected by a condition that had a disease community, I would want to join, I would want to be active. Um, but what, my, what I try and do in the book is take a step back and say, well, what does it mean when we start to classify and reclassify disease and especially developmental difference using genetics, right? I call this genomic designation, right? What happens when we start to use genetic mutations and genomic variants as the basis for disease classification, to discover new diseases, to delineate diseases, and to diagnose patients? And so the book really is focused on that particular um, group of disease communities, the ones that are working for what I call genomically designated conditions, conditions where if you have a mutation or a variant, um, it's necessary and sufficient for diagnosis. If you have the mutation, you have the condition, and if you don't, you don't. And that, um, when you take a step back, is a really fundamentally different way of classifying disease than what we're used to thinking about. Um, and so I think it's actually helpful to go all the way back to 1959 when they first started to discover genetic mutations in human beings. So in early 1959, you have these landmark discoveries that uh, XXY can cause Klinefelter syndrome and especially the very famous study that a third copy of the 21st chromosome causes what they called Mongolian idiocy, what we now call Down syndrome, right, or trisomy 21. And that's the way we usually think genetics is supposed to work, right? We have a medical condition, Klinefelter's Down syndrome, cystic fibrosis, whatever it is, and we want to discover the quote-unquote gene for it, right? Um, but later that same year, 1959, so over 60 years ago, they started to discover genetic mutations that didn't line up with existing categories of disease or human difference. Things like trisomy X, so females with an extra X chromosome, or trisomy 18 and 13, Edwards and Patau syndrome. And for geneticists, it was very straightforward, almost obvious that we should say, well, these don't line up with existing conditions, so we've discovered a new medical condition, right? Trisomy X, Edwards syndrome, Patau syndrome. Um, and then as the years went on, they discovered more and more mutations, smaller and smaller. And when they didn't line up with existing conditions, 
they would just kind of delineate new disease categories, right? And what I try and show in the book is that this has been going on for over 60 years now, this, this practice of genomic designation in the genetics and the medical literature. And so all the way back then, you know, you would get a publication in The Lancet or the New England Journal or really, really high profile journals for discovering these conditions. And even today, when when researchers discover a new copy number variant or mutation or whatever um, and report it, they'll, you know, they'll often get a very nice publication out of it. But back then, it usually didn't amount to much more than that. You could make a career on it in esoteric genetics, but it didn't really change people's lives. And if there is one, I mean, there are many factors involved that changed that, but by far, I would say the biggest driver was precisely these disease communities. Once you started having groups of patients, parents, experts, um, and I should say there's almost always a genetic counselor really kind of leading the charge and playing an integral role, um, they start to build up patient case numbers. They start to discover new subtleties in the phenotype right? They start to create a community. They do all of these things that mean when a patient finds out they have a mutation or a family finds out that a patient has a mutation, it can transform everything, right? From their expectations, their communities, their identities, the kinds of treatments that are recommended, their kind of referrals that are recommended. And so when we talk about disease communities, in a way what the book does is it says disease communities can take a genetic mutation, which is like a pretty fixed thing, and yet it can transform what it means, right, in all kinds of ways that impact people's lives. So let me, I think the examples you gave, there's sort of a built-in comparison there. So you talked about trisomy 18, trisomy 13, and triple X, right? Um, so interestingly, when I think about how that would be used, right, to, to, to be able to identify it, for trisomy 13 and trisomy 18, these are children who don't survive, right? So they're medically interesting to know what caused it. You understand better. Maybe you learn something about the pathways, something about the genes. But, but basically, the way you're going to use that is now, if you were to do a test in advance and know that a trisomy 13 or a trisomy 18 is on the way, you sort of have prognostic inf inf information. It doesn't change anything for the life of that child. Triple X, on the other hand, this is how, how different these things are. Triple X, you know, is, is a condition where without having a designation, someone could easily live out their whole life not knowing that they had any condition to call a condition. It, you know, they have a variation, right? Without the name, they might not really see it as pathogenic. Like you don't. It's, it's, it may not be the most salient thing about this person. You know, it, it's very mild is what I'm trying to say. And suddenly somebody, you know, whether it's because they're on the mild end of a spectrum or because the condition itself is very mild, has this medical designation. So is that, you know, is that something that that you look at that you think is is the difference, you know, like like how it impacts people who are on the milder end of the spectrum? Absolutely. I mean, that's a huge focus of the book. So you're absolutely right to say some of these conditions are consistently very severe. They're, you know, highly penetrant, highly pathogenic. Um, it still shapes people's lives. You still have foundations for those conditions. There's still advocacy. But you're right. I mean, the, the main purpose of testing for trisomy 13 or 18 is prenatally to inform reproductive decision making and then usually um, decisions about management and perhaps shifting to palliative care and, and tragic decisions like that. I spend a lot of the book talking about cases that are much more variable, right? So trisomy X and XYY syndrome, two of the very earliest uh, chromosomal abnormalities ever reported, are, are really excellent cases. And they tend to shape expectations and treatment specifically around neurodevelopmental differences. And so you're right to say that um, most people with trisomy X or XYY are very unlikely to come to medical attention um, in a way that would lead to a referral for genetic testing, right? Um, they tend to be picked up prenatally, incidentally, um, things like that, or sometimes when a kid has, has um, sort of uh, uh, developmental challenges, um, special education needs, things like that. But 
even though I think you're right to say it's more of a difference than a disease, at least in many cases, it's still considered a syndrome. It's still something that when it is discovered in a, in a person and when it's reported in the medical record, things happen, right? Um, and so if you go to the Association for X and Y Chromosome Variations, the, the main advocacy group for people with conditions like XXX and XYY, they do advocate for lots of referrals for early interventions um, for developmental and educational issues. There is an active community um, and it, it really shapes identity. Right. And so even though people with those um, aneuploidies would probably not have been considered developmentally delayed, um, they probably would not have been considered ill, at least, you know, because of the, that, that chromosome variant. Um, it still changes their prognosis and it can change expectations. And in some cases, we see that when adults are diagnosed, it can kind of recast their history, right? It can have them reinterpret why perhaps they were less successful than their unaffected siblings and things like that. And so you actually start to see researchers do similar things when they start to compare people with mild genetic disorders that have neurodevelopmental implications. They'll compare people to their unaffected siblings. And they'll say things like, well, the average person with XYY or trisomy X doesn't have intellectual disability. Their IQ is well above 70, um, and so they're not eligible for that diagnosis. But they're one or two standard deviations below their unaffected parents and siblings. Their IQ might be 80 or 90 instead of 110 or 120. And so in that way, experts and advocates are, are starting to recast human difference based on this knowledge about their genetics, right? In ways that I do think have quite profound implications for that person, but also, you know, in some ways for uh, society more generally, right? And so when we think about these milder cases, a whole set of issues come into view. And then there are kind of cases in between like 22Q on 1.2 deletion syndrome, where you do have very seriously affected people, but you also have this enormous phenotypic range, this enormous phenotypic heterogeneity. And so, so you, in every case- You talk a lot in the book about 22Q, uh, and I wanna get to that in, in one second and, and, and the other, but I just wanna dig in a little bit further. So when you say it has enormous, because I'm really fascinated by this, say it has enormous, implications for the individual. I think that's right. But from a sociology point of view, so it's interesting to hear hear your field talked about through somebody through the lens of a different field. What do you think those enormous implications are? Like, are they good? Are they bad? Do you, do you think there's a risk involved that clinicians should be aware of? I think if I have to, you know, lay my cards on the table, I think it's far too soon to say what the overall balance of benefits and harms or pitfalls might be. But we can at least point to things that we should be investigating, right? So um, if we look at the upside, it provides opportunities for early ascertainment of problems, early intervention, community formation, solidarity, all of these really important things that you know, many of the, the patients and parents that I've spoken to found to be an enormous benefit to their lives, right? Especially when a lot of them have undergone a diagnostic odyssey where they do have a lot of problems that have been treated as, you know, just a laundry list, right? Whereas once they have that genetic diagnosis, it's more like they have one problem with a series of different manifestations. So it can absolutely be a huge, huge benefit to, to patients and their families. But we can also you know, think about some of the potential pitfalls, right? So um, that initial process or even shock of receiving the diagnosis can be really, really troubling for people. So I, I talked to one mother who described the process of receiving her baby's 22Q on 1.2 deletion syndrome diagnosis. Um, she said it inaugurated what she called a process of mourning for the future, right? Um, she would go online and read about the 180 associated problems, the dozens of referrals that were going to be recommended, and, and all of the really scary things from intellectual disability to heart malformations to schizophrenia, um, you know, you name it, 22Q can, is, is associated with it. And so 
And so that was very troubling for her. But over time, she came to really embrace the diagnosis, the 22Q community, and it ended up being a real source of, um, of empowerment for her, right? But we still have to think about issues around parent-child bonding, lowered expectations, self-fulfilling prophecies, all of these things that, especially when it comes to issues related to neurodevelopmental disorder, um, I, do, I still don't think we fully understand. So we're not talking about cases like, say, Lynch syndrome, where we know there's a risk for a particular problem. We're talking about something that really is integral to a person who they are. In theory, it can be associated with any problem or challenge um, that they face throughout their lives. And so it really changes um, identity, prospect horizons, um, prognosis, all of those things in quite profound ways. But again, it's always still important to think about each particular case, right? And then, you know, if we're also thinking about potential pitfalls, there are concerns about um, overtreatment and healthcare costs, right? I did a lot of my field work before um, the rollout of the ACA, um, but a lot of parents had faced serious hardship trying to um, meet all the recommendations for something like 22Q, which are quite daunting. Um, and I know some of them have continued to face those challenges uh, even after the, the rollout of the Affordable Care Act. Um, and then from a health systems perspective, when we're thinking about something like triple X, XYY, the fragile X premutation, right? These are all quite common. And as genetic testing expands, both prenatal testing through an IPT, but also postnatal screening. Um, if all of those people are being diagnosed, right, historically, most of those people have not been picked up. If all of those people are being picked up at an early age, we should rightly expect parents to demand those referrals and those early interventions, as they should, because that's what's recommended, and we would all do whatever it takes to help our children. Um, but from a health systems perspective, that will be uh, will require an enormous investment, not least because we just don't have the um, the number of genetic counselors that we desperately need to deal with this growing influx of genetic information that parents are trying uh, patients and parents are trying to make sense of. Um, you know, I was thinking while I read the book, there's a quite a bit on the X Y Y historical story, and I. I thinking while I was reading it that we don't talk about this much anymore and it's actually quite an instructive story so would you talk about that history for maybe listeners that aren't aware of of what went on with XYY when it was first discovered right so XYY which is of course a males with an extra Y chromosome um, was discovered in the early 1960s uh, there are a couple of case reports that were sort of not very remarkable. But then there was this um, really uh, landmark study um, by Patricia Jacobs and her colleagues in Edinburgh, who had been looking at the uh, the chromatin, uh, the chromosome complements basically, um, of people in prisons and asylums in Scotland. And what they found, or at least thought they had found, was this dramatic overrepresentation of males with an extra Y chromosome, what they called XYY or super male syndrome. That was the term at the time. Um, and from that overrepresentation, they inferred that the extra Y chromosome would likely be associated with aggression, what they called mental subnormality, violence, criminality, as well as some things that have turned out to be more you know, correct, like increased stature or height, acne, things like that. And so, you know, this is the 1960s. There's enormous concerns about crime waves, things like that. There's this very intuitive idea that, you know, most violent criminals are males. So if you have two Y chromosomes or quote unquote male chromosomes, you have double trouble. Um, this was all very much in the in, in the the kind of zeitgeist at the time. And you saw this enormous international interest, you know, the front page of the New York Times, researchers going to um, asylums and prisons all over the world looking for these these men. Uh, several high profile murder trials, um, a famous serial killer was um, was labeled XYY, even though he turned out to be just a normal old XY male. And so you had this this really sensationalist idea of super male syndrome, right? It gets picked up in science fiction movies. There's a whole Aliens movie where XYY is part of the story. There's novels and TV shows. And, and so this all comes to a head when the NIMH, understandably, 
wants to, sorry, the National Institute of Mental Health wants to fund a prospective study to say, okay, we know there's a problem of ascertainment bias here. Let's see the truth. Let's do an unbiased screen of thousands of babies and find out who has XYY and trace them. And this elicits an enormous backlash from the ACLU and a group called Science for the People who say, this smacks of eugenics, you're going to create, you know, people who are, their parents are going to expect that they're going to be criminals. Um, it's going to create all of these self-fulfilling prophecies. And this is just totally unethical. And to, to cut a long story short, most of the studies end up folding, um, even though a lot of the parents were very supportive. They wanted to know. They wanted to um, be aware of issues they needed to look out for. They wanted to be aware of interventions that might help their child develop normally. But this this backlash um, blew it all. And so what we now know is that a lot of those early findings were straightforward ascertainment bias, right? If you look for XYY males in prisons and asylums, you're going to find certain kinds of people. And that actually XYY is found in one in a thousand people. And it's very common among people who are considered males who are considered completely normal. I mean, but, that was the big that was the big mistake, right? They 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 assumed it was ex vanishingly rare. Exactly. So when they saw it at these sort of numbers in prisons, they're like, oh, look, this is rampant. Uh, and then when they looked at at the general population, they thought, oh, no, it turns out that these are just the numbers that we find it in the general population. And there may be some overrepresentation um, because there are challenges that come with X, Y, Y. Right. There, so if we fast forward to the present, there's now an active patient group. There's a lot of research on X, Y, Y as a kind of very mild neurodevelopmental disorder increased risk of ADHD, increased risk of high-functioning autism, increased risk of uh, so slightly lowered IQs relative to unaffected siblings, not relative to the general population. And so there are reasons to think that if you have XYY combined with all other kinds of life challenges, you might be at a slightly greater risk of ending up in prison or an asylum. Um, but it's a subtle difference based on this very mild neurodevelopmental phenotype, right, variable, but usually mild neurodevelopmental phenotype, um, that combined with ascertainment bias drove that story. And so looking at XYY provides this enormous cautionary tale about ascertainment bias, which is still endemic to the field, not in kind of egregious, harmful ways like the XYY story, but it's still very much there. We all know this, right? Like, if you're not doing prospective studies, if you're not doing screening, you're going to get the more severely affected people. And then there's this kind of catch-22 where you can't screen if you don't know the full phenotype, the unbiased phenotype, but you'll never know the unbiased phenotype if you don't screen. And so genetics still finds itself caught in a somewhat similar bind when it comes to the ethics of screening for especially mild genetic conditions, things where we don't really understand the full phenotype. And so you know, recent studies have shown the vast majority of males with an extra Y chromosome or females with an extra X don't know, right? And never would have, you know, don't, don't exhibit symptoms that would ever lead to genetic testing, right? It's, it's usually picked up through these screening studies or incidental findings. Yeah. So you talk a great deal in the book about a couple of examples of genomic designation, autism and 22Q, which you already referenced. Um, let's dig in a little bit on those two. Sure. Um, and they're sort of mirror twins, right? So because 22Q is an umbrella term and um, it gave an explanation for many, many medical problems that originally seemed unrelated or coincidental. And how do you think bringing all those together under one umbrella uh, impacted individuals with 22Q? You talk about the phrase leveraging mutations. Like, can you explain what that means? Well, let, let me take a little step back and then I'll come back to the leveraging point. So I think 22Q on 1.2, I also talk a lot about 22Q on 3 in the book. So, you know, very different conditions despite the similar um, chromosomal location. Um, 22Q on 1.2 microdeletions really give um, a good um, kind of typification of 
how complex genomic designation can be, right? Sometimes researchers find a new mutation, it doesn't really line up closely with anything, and they say, okay, we found 5P minus syndrome. We found 22Q13.3 deletion syndrome. And it, it, it sort of took something brand new in the literature. 22Q11.2 was much more complicated. So it's initially discovered and thought to be a kind of gene for the George syndrome this very rare uh, condition in the, that was um, just starting to be the subject of a lot of research in the, the 70s and 80s. They then start to find these same microdeletions in kids with velocardiofacial syndrome, or VCFS. And so when you say it's an umbrella term, I think that's right, but there's also this, this more complicated history. 22Q11 lumps de George and VCFS together, right? They're, they start to be thought of as the same thing, even though their clinical descriptions were actually very different. But there are also a lot of people with those old clinical diagnoses who didn't have the 22Q11.2 microdeletion. And they are kind of diagnostically orphaned. They no longer are thought to have that condition. They right? are not under the umbrella. They're, they're right. They are in the rain. Exactly right. And they are left to, you know, find other diagnoses. And and those are just the two most um, prominent of several disorders that get kind of lumped into this new condition, 22Q11.2 deletion syndrome. At the same time, lots of people who never would have qualified for any of those old clinical diagnoses do have these microdeletions and therefore do have 22Q11.2 deletion syndrome. Right. And so it's an umbrella term, but it also subsumed several older conditions, excluded a number of patients who didn't have the microdeletion, and also brings in a whole host of more mildly affected people who, and be, because this is a genomically designated condition, there's no debate. They have the syndrome. They're not carriers. They have the syndrome. They're just mildly affected. And so 22Q11.2 isn't just an umbrella term. It's much, much more complicated than that. And it changes medical classification um, and diagnosis in quite radical ways. And that's why I think that um, thinking about genomic designation instead of just calling it genotype first diagnosis, if we think about the nuances and the complexities of what happens when you use genetic mutations and variants to diagnose, to discover disease and diagnose patients, these really, really subtle, complicated changes happen when you dig into the history, right? And so when you think about 22Q11.2, this brings us back to your question about leveraging because it's associated with so many different phenotypes, so many different clinical issues, right? So for 22Q, we know that um, a significant proportion of people with 22Q go on to develop schizophrenia later in life. And for researchers, especially researchers in psych psychiatric genetics, that's this really tantalizing prospect, right? So why? Well, a lot of researchers in my fieldwork would describe a condition like 22Q or fragile X for autism, which we could talk about too, as what they call low-hanging fruit. Because you know the genetic starting point, and therefore you can start to work your way through the kind of pathophysiological process from the mutation through the pathways to the psychiatric phenotype of schizophrenia or autism or ADHD, all of which have attracted researchers to 22Q. And the goal here is to use that genetic specificity, right? We know the mutation that seems to be causing the problem as the starting point to get at schizophrenia or autism at large. And so when researchers talk about a mouse model for schizophrenia or a mouse model for autism, what they're usually talking about is a mouse model that has a homologous mutation to one of these genomically designated conditions where people frequently, but not always, have the associated condition, right? So if half of kids with Fragile X are diagnosable with autism, that makes Fragile X, and it, this has been the case for decades now, the hot topic in genetics research on autism, right? Um, if a third or more people with 22Q developed schizophrenia, that's made it the hot topic in the genetics of schizophrenia, including for pharmaceutical companies, right? So most of the trials we have for genetically targeted therapies for these kinds of very common psychiatric conditions 
are actually based on these much smaller subsets of people, right? But it's a little bit more complicated than that, right? Because take Fragile X and autism. So from the Fragile X expert or family's perspective, autism is just a symptom, right? They think their kid has Fragile X syndrome and autism is just one of a number of different symptoms. And what's more, they tend to think of it as different from regular idiopathic autism, right? So they'll say things like, well, it's true that kids with Fragile X have an aversion to eye contact, right? And that is well established. But for kids with Fragile X, it's because of an acute awareness of other people, not a sort of lack of awareness of other people in the kind of form, the, the, the way that classic autism tends to manifest. And so these groups want to both encourage research based on the idea that their condition, their mutation represents a portal, as the Fragile X people put it, onto this really common hot topic of autism, but also maintain that autism is just a symptom for them, not the real condition, and that in fact it's actually markedly different, right? And so these leveraging dynamics are really, really complicated. They mean that some of these people with genomically designated conditions, or these groups rather, are some of the most intensively studied groups of people in biomedicine because they represent this quote-unquote low-hanging fruit. Um, but at the same time, they want to maintain their own identity and keep their own goals in mind, even as they're kind of engaging researchers in the idea that they'll, they'll serve as the key to these really common conditions. And, and it's beneficial that serve as a key, be a portal, whatever. That, that's a, it's a, those are a bunch of code words for bringing in money, right? Bringing in money and attention to your your condition, the condition that you're concerned about. Right. So from the researcher's perspective, it's a genetic portal onto this common thing. But from the Fragile X Foundation's perspective or the International 22Q Foundation perspective, yes, it, it attracts researchers. But it's not always, you know, all um, gumdrops and roses. Because to take the example of Fragile X, um, the endpoints in the pharmaceutical trials for Fragile X compounds were oriented around things related to autism. And that's not where the parents actually saw the effect, the beneficial effect. And so the trials failed, even though the parents thought that the trials were enormously successful in helping their children because of that mismatch between what the, the parents saw as the benefit and what the companies were aiming at. So it sometimes the the match between the interests the ones interested in the big issues and the ones interested in the rare genetic disorder aren't perfectly aligned the interests aren't perfectly aligned and that can create issues right especially for something like williams syndrome where re researchers are interested in williams syndrome so williams syndrome is caused by a, a deletion at 7q11 and the kids tend to have intellectual ability but these incredible relative strengths in language and sociality. And so researchers tend to be interested in Williams syndrome for its strengths, not the many challenges that parents face, the heart defects, the developmental challenges, right, which to them are, you know, where they would like to see those resources being dedicated. And so the, the interests don't always align in a way that is is perfect for those communities. But you're right, for them, it's a it's a huge boon in, in most cases. So let's talk a little bit I mentioned autism as sort of like a mirror or a twin. And what I meant by that is that when I was reading the book, I was aware that I was thinking that that autism is in some ways the opposite because there is no single genetic cause of autism. Right. And in, in fact, um, genetics could be used to split up the autism community into many sort of smaller groups around genomic designation and I could see that happening. I, I wouldn't say that it is, has happened. Do, do you see it happening already? Yes and no. Um, it's not happening in the sense that, um, you know, the, the, the dream of having DSM-5 that is um, a new kind of biological system of psychiatric classification, the centuries-long ambition of psychiatrists who feel left out because their diagnoses aren't grounded in biology, it's not going to happen in that sense anytime soon, right? Um, we just don't know enough about the genetics of autism to carve it up into neat packages of, you know, X percent have 
this thing and why percent of that. But from the rare disease perspective, I do think it's happening. So um, there's a as I as I mentioned, there's a big difference between having a diagnosis of autism and having a diagnosis of fragile X and autism. Right. Autism starts to seem more like a symptom of the quote unquote real condition. That's that's how fragile X experts and families tend to see it. Um, and so from their perspective, yes, autism is being broken up into these smaller, more genetically grounded conditions. Right. But when you take a step back and think about it historically, most of these conditions weren't associated with autism 20, 30, 40 years ago, even though even the ones that were well established in the literature. And what that shows us is that as autism has changed, as its diagnostic criteria have become broader and broader, it's brought these genetic mutations into its remit, right? And so autism's, the way we classify it, right, that process of diagnostic change has actually changed the genetic makeup of the population. Because 40 years ago, you wouldn't have said that kids with XYY are at high risk of autism. Certainly you wouldn't have said that kids with Williams syndrome might have an autism spectrum disorder or 22Q and, and so on and so forth. But as autism's become this more encompassing diagnostic category, more common, more diffuse, it sort of brought these mutations into its remit. And so by, by tracing these conditions over time, the rare genetic conditions over time, you see how diagnostic change can actually change the genetic makeup of a condition like autism, right? In ways that, um, you know, I think show why it's so useful to pay close attention to the development of genomically designated syndromes over time, right? What it means to have fragile X is very different now than it was 30 or 40 years ago, right? And the same goes for all of these conditions. You, yeah, this is really interesting. You mentioned uh, when you were talking about autism that psychiatry had, what did you call it? Like this insecurity because its conditions didn't line up with uh, the genetics, which is true, right? The gen- among the, elite, I think among elite research psychiatrists, this has been a, a, a thorn in their side for centuries now. You said this in the book. So uh, Tom Insel, who was the director of National Institute of Mental Health, uh, although he has um, sort of stepped very far away from this recently. He took a, but but at the at the time that he was had he he made this big statement, right? It says biology never read the DSM. The DSM, in case you didn't know, is the diagnostic manual for psychiatry, like which which is which is true. So the psychiatry had very carefully designated based on observations what these different categories were. And um, and because, you know, a, a behavioral disorder, a psychiatric disorder, you can't look at it. You can't say your your eyes are this far apart. You're 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 you have a cleft palate. You don't have an arm like there isn't a physical manifestation that you can point to. People look for, and and so it already had this sort of hard to prove quality. Right. And, and also some of the, you know, bad aspects of that pathogenic aspects of psychiatric disease, you know, also are part of normal behavior. So it's this complicated situation here. Conditions have changed so much from DSM to DSM that it makes people's heads spin, right? And so they say, well, what's going on over there? Yes, yes. So, So they had this historically grounded observational set of uh, diagnoses. And Tom Insel came in and said, these aren't lining up with the biological slash genetic realities that we see. And we want to redo this whole system. We want to make it a system of biological um, nomenclature, biologically based nomenclature. We're going to redo it. This was a giant failure. Yep. And uh, I happened to be at a lecture the morning this came out um, in with a bunch of psychiatrists. I was at a conference with a bunch of psychiatrists. (laughs) They were all up in arms because amongst other things, um, they pointed out that, that, that they were able to, but you know, the, the insurance companies dealt in these diagnoses. That's how they build for their time. And that's how you enabled people to get treatment. Like, like the whole system of treatment and uh, medication was built on these set of diagnoses. So you might say over time, we need to move away from this. 
but you couldn't wipe clean the system and be left with nothing because nothing is what we have right now right like we we don't really understand the relationship between genetics and psychiatric disease so um yes yeah, so the the I think that's true with autism too. Is I, I think that this sort of plays into like um, and and some of the other comments you were making too about like well these groups are trying to create an identity, but they're also trying to make sure they get services. And a big that's a big piece of this. If if I identify this as you know under under an umbrella, I have some sway in terms of saying this is our disease and we need services and we need resources and we need a code. We need a code that, that you can return. So it's yes. very complicated to dismantle a system. Yeah. And, and the attempt to, to make DSM-5, which was the, the most recent one, um, the attempt to make it a kind of manual based on biological classification was just a remarkable episode of hubris, right? For precisely the reason you mentioned, you know, you take autism, at best, you might be able to find a genetic, an underlying genetic cause or, or at least association in approaching half, right? So 3% have fragile X and 1% have 22Q and so on and so on. Um, but autism is actually an outlier in that respect. It would be much less for schizophrenia. It would be basically nothing for ADHD. And as you you know move into other psychiatric diagnoses, it would be you know vanishingly small. And so whether it's neuroimaging results or genetic test results, yeah, they would have seeded the overwhelming mass of their patient population, and no medical group is going to do that. Another interesting thing about the genetics of of, of autism is that most of the genetic changes that are associated with autism are neither necessary nor sufficient to create autism, meaning lots of people walk around with these same changes and no diagnosis. Or and, and also, even when you look at autism in the same family, you, when you have genetic findings, they might be different genetic findings. So something is you know, causing the familial risk and it's not necessarily the genetic variation that they found. So, to, to take and your, you can't, you can't rejigger it and say like, okay, everyone with this variant qualifies as having autism. Exactly, exactly. And so, you know, you, you mentioned in cells biology, never read the DSM. I prefer um, Brenda Finucane. She was the the president of the National Society of Genetic Counselors several years ago. Her line, I think, is actually more um, thoughtful. She says. Um, the gene didn't get the memo that 70 is the cutoff for intellectual disability. And so her point is that when you when you go and take this kind of gene first approach, um, instead of thinking in terms of these um, binary dichotomous, you have it or you don't, autism, intellectual disability, whatever, we should be looking at much more subtle changes in people and not excluding them from services based on these arbitrary cutoffs based on what they're actually like, right? And so if, you, if you're at a, a, an annual meeting for a group like the 22Q Foundation, they'll encourage patients to take the autism diagnosis or the anxiety diagnosis or whatever it is and really use it when they're interfacing with teachers, special educators, when they're developing um, IEDs, when they're going to their primary care practitioner, use those diagnoses but always at the same time think about the underlying genetic condition as the real thing and these other things as symptoms. And so you should start trying to get your primary care doctor to think in terms of the genetics, but you should also use these phenotype or clinical based, clinically based diagnoses like autism for everything they're worth. And so they're constantly juggling the, the complexity and the kind of dissonance almost of working in these two different worlds, the world of genetic classification or genomic designation and the world of traditional psychiatric classification, which they they see as kind of um, almost a, uh, as subjective and um, changeable versus the genetics, which is objective and fixed. Right. But they're They're going to use both where it makes sense to use both. Right. And so they're they're living in both worlds. Right. Even as they see one as more grounded in reality than the other one. We're almost running out of time. And, uh, you know, because I'm pretty sure this is the 
right thing to do as an interview, or I always try to think of an impossible question to throw at somebody just as you're running out of time and sort of say, can you answer this really fast? But that was meant to be a joke because it's uh, this is an impossible question, but I just wanted to get your take on it because I've been thinking a lot lately about this issue you started this conversation with about identity and how these genetics become an identity. Thinking about it a lot because I think uh, when we talk about using say, reproductive genetic technology to avoid the birth of uh, children with certain conditions, and that can be very offensive comment to groups of people, can be felt as considering and saying that the world would be a better place without this group of people, without that group of people, which of course is a very disturbing idea. But it's only a disturbing idea when the concept of identity is wrapped up in it, right? So uh, if I said to somebody, wouldn't it be a better world without cystic fibrosis? I don't think that would be interpreted as a slur on people with cystic fibrosis, because I think people with cystic fibrosis can easily envision themselves as the same person, but without cystic fibrosis, right? Like, you know, it's getting rid of a disease and not getting rid of a group of people. But if I said, I'm not saying this, people, I'm not saying this, but if I said, wouldn't the world be a better place without Down syndrome? It would certainly be interpreted as a comment of like somehow right. um, uh, that, that Down syndrome is this terrible thing and comment on people with Down syndrome. And it would be. Because Down syndrome is an identity. It is fully inhabited. It's impossible to say like, well, I'm saying is like, then everybody with Down syndrome wouldn't have Down syndrome anymore. But you can't really imagine your way out of that. Right. And I'm wondering, you've been looking at this a lot. And I know that you sort of circle around these notions of identity, what's an identity, how these groups form an identity and so on. Do you have any thoughts of what makes something an identity as opposed to the word I think you were, you know, a symptom or a manifestation. What what makes it the identity? I think part of what makes it an identity is that you have a community of people who share that thing, in this case, a genetic mutation or a variant, and they invest in it. They choose to make it um, the thing that, in to a large extent, defines them, defines their um, their prospect horizons, their prognosis, um, and, and sets a series of expectations, um, but also a set of commonalities, of solidarities between patients and with families. But you're right to, to tie this to this question of uh, reproductive technologies, right? Because as disability rights advocates have been pointing out for a long time, putting a genetic condition or a mutation on a prenatal panel is not neutral it implies that it may not be compatible with a quote, life worth living, and that selective abortion might be an appropriate response. It changes that identity. And so as we're moving into this new world of non-invasive prenatal screening and perhaps even testing, that raises huge questions for the identities of people with these conditions, right? And so if we start to think about a world where most women undergo some kind of prenatal genetic screening, um, for conditions like Down syndrome, but also things like XXX and XYY, to bring it back to our, uh, our discussion earlier, which were some of the first conditions added to the non-invasive prenatal screens. That raises a series of questions about the identity of those conditions, but also their patient base, their population moving forward. So what is it going to mean for those identities when they're mostly picked up prenatally rather than through, you know, these sort of very ad hoc processes of clinical ascertainment, right? When people are given that diagnosis, that label before they're even born, right? Before there's any phenotype to really look at at all in the case of a neurodevelopmental disorder. Um, what's it gonna mean when their population prevalence is actually lower, but many more people are being diagnosed, right? So you think about that from the perspective of an advocacy organization, which is what, as I say, really where a lot of these identities um, are, are crystallized, they might have a lot more members working to support the cause, but they'll also be representing fewer people. Meanwhile, they might be representing people who are less wealthy, less urban, less religious, um, less white, right? All of these things that we know bias the uptake of genetic testing. Um, they might start to represent, over, have an overrepresentation of people from states that don't allow 
abortions, right? There are all kinds of ways in which you have these identities grounded in these incredible activist organizations, um, but the ground can shift beneath their feet, right? As we're starting to see right now with the rollout of non-invasive prenatal testing, which of course means many, many more people are going to be tested for these conditions prenatally, or fetuses, I should say. Um, and so when we think about the identity of these conditions moving forward, we have to always pay careful attention to the way that they change, partly because of the incredible activism of those groups, partly because of advances in knowledge, but partly because of things that are kind of from without, right? The sort of um, earthquake that that non-invasive prenatal testing represents for these groups. And so, you know, I think the the core of the answer is that the identity, it's, it's really up to, to different people, right? We have, or at least we should have agency when it comes to, to our identity, right? To how we let a genetic diagnosis shape the way we think about ourselves um, in all kinds of ways, right? Um, and by the way, I just want to give a shout out to, you know, the audience here, to genetic counselors. Genetic counselors are, in, at least in my work, they were the great um, heroes of the story in the sense that they're working behind the scenes, helping researchers and families kind of work together to understand each other and to move forward with these, these projects of social mobilization. Um, but as much as a genetic mutation can profoundly shape someone's identity, it also can have very little impact. So a lot of the time people get a, a genetic diagnosis and there is no foundation. There are no established treatment guidelines. There is no specialist clinic. And for them, getting a genetic diagnosis might really not mean that much. Maybe it'll explain what's wrong with them or what challenges they're facing or how they're different, but it's probably not going to profoundly shape their identity, certainly not their community. Whereas if an alliance of researchers, patients, families, genetic counselors, and others have come together around a mutation, have chosen to invest in it in terms of identity, in terms of research, in terms of treatment, it can change everything. Right? It can lead to a completely different identity and a completely different set of prospect horizons for people and their families. And so, I, again, it all depends. So I think if my if my book really um, lays some kind of agenda for what we should be looking at, it should be the way that genomic designation, this turn to classify and reclassify people based on genetic mutations and variants, it should be to study how that impacts people's identities, but also the way they're treated by doctors, by teachers, um, by many different actors, right? And so it's really just a call to say, we need to start paying attention to this as a distinct way of classifying people. And then we can start to unpack the way that patient groups mobilize around it, the impact that that can have, and the many different ways moving forward, ways that we might not have even thought about yet, that knowing about a genetic mutation can change a person's identity. So if you want to read a book where genetic counselors are really the heroes of the story, then you might want to read Mobilizing Mutations, Human Genetics in the Age of Patient Advocacy. And beside that self-serving comment, I will tell you that I found it very interesting and enjoyed reading it very much. And I enjoyed having you um, visit today. Thank you so much. Thanks so much, Laura. It's really great to be with you. Thank you for joining us and everybody stay safe out there.